We got the science now. Weird science. <laughs> is that the real lyrics? I don't know. Yeah, we've got some science now. It is getting kind of weird. Weird science. It's science. This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. Have we yet? I haven't found a thing. <laughs> We've been working hard for six solid weeks. Uh, today's theme is childhood. We're picking our favorite films or most impactful films from when we were kids. So to start us off, say your name, and if you could magically travel into any cartoon, what cartoon would you choose? Kyle T. Gibby Gibson. If I could magically travel into any cartoon, it would probably be the Jetsons. You had flying cars, robot maids, instant food. You could talk to people face-to-face over the phone. All things of dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it that the Jetsons and the Flintstones are actually happening at the same period of time? I've heard that theory, yeah. Ooh, that's yeah. crazy. Oh, that's cool. Lance. I'm going to go a little throwback here. I don't know if you guys can remember this. Do you remember that Saturday morning cartoon, Captain in the Game Master? Yeah, definitely yeah. not. It was like the Nintendo games were a world. Yeah. And this character, he was just like a normal high school kid, got thrown into this world, and he would just visit all the different Nintendo games. He had uh, the uh, duck hunt gun, right? It was his yeah, weapon. Yeah. I've never heard of this. Yeah. yeah it's, it, w- it was awesome. It was awesome. And it was very short-lived. It wasn't around long, and then it was I just mean, gone. I mean, I'm sure it's and, terrible. Oh, it's got to be awful <laughs> now, but but I'd want to try it. At the time, it, it was so yeah. great. It's a good one to live in. Jordan. Count Duckula. Was that a whole series? Yeah. Count Duckula. Was that a cereal? Was it, from <laughs> yeah. the, was it an offshoot of DuckTales? No, definitely oh. not. It was about oh. a duck um, Dracula vampire yeah. who lived in this awesome Transylvanian castle that the mailman had a really hard time getting to. <laughs> That's funny. It's still awesome. Alrighty. My name is Hudson, and I'm going to go with G.I. Joe. Oh, I would want to be one of the Joes. I feel like laundry isn't really an issue. You just wear the same thing every day. <laughs> <laughs> You, you wouldn't have to worry about dying because yeah, no one ever died in that die. show. Do you know any cartoons where they change their clothes? <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get into our list, we went on Facebook and asked you guys at facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm. Plug. Asked you what your favorite childhood movies were. So we're going to do something a little different this time. We're going to try where we will go around and each one of us will take one of these names and do what we think they sound like. So Lance, why don't you start us off and do what you think Jonah Berkowitz sounds like? Hi, I'm Jonah Berkowitz. Star Wars, Back to the Future, never-ending story up there for me. They fuel my love for all things sci-fi and fantasy to this day. <laughs> That's a little mean. <laughs> Is, it? Is that mean? That's exactly how I was going to do my voice. I wanted to be like the, the stroke guy so, from, yeah, Simpsons. from Simpsons. Yeah. I like Jonah. Jonah and Gibby have a lot of the same similar taste in movies. Good job, Jonah. Star Wars, Back to the Future, never-ending It's like I'm story. right here in the room with Jonah. Gibby, uh, what do you think Emmett Howell sounds like? The Gnome-mobile. Sadly, I can still sing the title song. Is that, like, is that Emmett as he's dying? Yeah, I like, tell you, I, th- I like that you played it sad, too. Yeah. Jordan, uh, why don't you tell us what Mandy Campbell sounds like? Yo, I'm Mandy. The Wizard of Oz used to come on TV at least once a year. Every year. My parents would wake me up when it did come on to stay up and watch it. 
even on a school night, in prime time. That was my first glimpse of movie magic, and even though flying monkeys are super creepy, that movie is still a favorite. <laughs> I have a question for Mandy. <laughs> Why are your parents waking you up at prime time? That's like 7.30. Yeah, what time was our bedtime? What time are you going to bed? Did you eat at like 4? They're like, all right, Mandy, you're home from school, time from bed. All right, Lance, you want to do this last one, or somebody else want to take it? Jeff Miller? Yeah, I'll do it. All right. How y'all folks doing? This is Jeff Miller. The last picture show, Plaza Suite, Mean Streets, The Godfather, and Trapeze. What kind of childhood did Jeff Miller have that, that he's watching Mean Streets and The Godfather? That's yeah. exactly the question I That's have. rough. I mean, yeah. it's... that's Jeff, we hope everything's okay. I'm not sure you understood the question. <laughs> I'm terrified that he did understand the question. <laughs> I think either way, I don't know how you can misinterpret the question that bad. <laughs> Real quick, I wanted to clarify, what criteria did you guys use to pick this? Was this the best movies you saw when you were children or movies that just impacted you a lot when you were children or something else? I went with Impact, with movies that meant a lot to me as a kid that I still go back to. Mm -hmm. These, for me, are movies that I have not revisited as an adult. So they're just movies that I loved as a kid that kind of exist still in that kid world. Yeah, I'm with Hudson in that. I mean, you'll actually notice on our list that some of the big boys aren't even on here, like Star Wars or E.T. or Raiders. And don't get us wrong, I think we all love these movies. But personally, I just pick movies that... When I think back in my childhood, movies I watched over and over and over and over and over again, multiple, probably 10 times. I can't say that these are good movies now because I haven't seen them in years, but boy, I loved them when I was a kid. Yeah, so yeah, that's, that was kind of it for me, too. These are not the best movies I saw as kids. These were movies that had some sort of unique effect on me yeah. in whatever way that might mean. Okay, let's jump right into this, gang. Does that feel like we sufficiently answered yeah, the question? Yeah, I think we're good. Yep. I like that part. <laughs> Gibby, do you want to jump into your number three? Is 1984's Conan the Destroyer. I think it's pronounced Conan. Conan? Mm -hmm. Conan. (laughs) Conan the Destroyer. (laughs) It's a PG-rated sequel to the pretty R-rated Conan the Barbarian a couple years earlier. So Conan the Barbarian came out in 1982. It was a dark, grimy, creepy, gory, very violent film. That's awesome. The sequel... Conan Destroyer came out two years later, and it's kind of a goofy romp throughout the magical countryside. (laughs) PG-rated, very little blood in this. It's just a completely different film. Arnold Schwarzenegger stars as the titular Conan. (laughs) There's no joke I can add to that to make it funnier. He's very titular. So this is about Conan picking up a gang of misfits, one of them being Wilt Chamberlain, and they escort a young virginal princess across a mystical country to capture some sort of magical horn and return it to an evil queen. It's so my understanding the- that Wilt Chamberlain was escorting a lot of virginal princesses <laughs> during <laughs> <Yes>. this time. <laughs> What's funny is in the movie, I believe Wilt Chamberlain plays the protector of the virginal princess. I think this is a documentary. Yeah. <laughs> in the first one... Arnold's kind of a little bit of a blank slate. He didn't have that much of a personality. He was just a big, strong ox of a man. But in this movie, he does show a little bit of charisma and charm and kind of the movie star he'd later become. What year did you say this was made? 1984. H- had he not become Schwarzenegger enough yet to not be doing uh-uh. movies like this? No, not yet. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think the, within the next, within the same year was Terminator. Right. Is this the last Conan movie? Mm-hmm. He does Terminator after this and then like Red Sonja and then Commando. which And that's where it really starts to kick off for him. Yeah. Got it. So, I mean, this was just a 
total 180 from the Ultra Series first movie, and I just love the adventure with these guys. And, I mean, we've discussed this, but the princess was a virgin, and I was too. So maybe we had that in common. Well, I'm, I'm happy to hear that in 1984. <laughs> yeah, that'd have been weird. Yeah, yeah it, it feels like, so was this like, this feels like this was a movie where they were like, yeah, we did Conan the Barbarian, but what about some Conan for kids? Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, I'd read online where the first movie did pretty well, but they thought they wanted a broader audience because some big kids movies had come out, E.T. and a few others, so they wanted to tap into that audience, which they felt they missed in the first one. So they rated this PG and toned it down a lot. And I guess at that point, the coveted five to ten year old demographic was just clamoring for a Conan movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently the producers, they you know, the first Conan was successful. Conan was successful, and they thought that it would be even more successful if kids could watch it. And so they asked that it be a PG rating. And then apparently the first cut was still R rated, and they had to go back and oh, cut really? stuff out of it. Yeah. yeah. Here's a funny story. I should sit around our house with a fake sword. <laughs> And I would take rocks and rub them all up and down the sword <laughs> to try to sharpen oh, okay. it like there's a scene in the meta, movie. Is this that was going or, uh, now that I say that out loud, there's a potential double meaning there. <laughs> this is not a funny story as much as a tragic, disturbing story. I actually did see the Wait, end of this. Wait, hold on. <laughs> I'm going rub to... rocks against the sword? So there's a scene in the movie where movie? they're all sitting around a campfire. Unless oh, it's like a completely sharpening, sharpening the sword. swords. <laughs> So I would sit around with a plastic sword and sharpen take a rock it and sharpen it. I was kind of an idiot kid. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a couple of interesting notes on this film. The lead actress who played the princess was Olivia Diabo, who later went on to play Kevin Arnold's sister in The Wonder Years. But this was her debut film. And when I was watching it a couple of weeks ago, I, th- I thought it was kind of weird because there's a scene at the end of the movie where she basically asked Conan to be her king along with her. And he says, no, I can't. I've got to go save, <laughs> save the country. There was no way we were getting into this without a one Arnold impression. <laughs> and so uh, they do this kind of like sensuous kiss. And I thought, well, I, I mean, I remember that from a kid, but I saw this again recently and I looked it up on IMDb. So at the time of filming, Arnold is like 36, 37 years old. Olivia Diabo is 14 when what? they filmed this movie. Whoa. She was born in That's 1969. So I assume they filmed it in uh, you know 1983. I'm going to commit statutory. <laughs> yeah. So Whoa. it's a little creepy. And one other thing about this, if you've seen this, certainly you remember the very, very, very end where it's kind of a dark ending or a depressing ending. It ends with Arnold just sitting in a empty room on a throne and it says, there's time for many more stories to come, but that's for another story. And then the closing music comes on and the movie just ends. I'm like, there's more stories. And it used to get me get so excited. I would go to the stores and look at Star Logs and wait for more Conan <laughs> movies, but they never He's always came. wanted to do more though, right? Yeah, he did. There's and a long-rumored King Conan. Yeah. Conan never that did is it. a sad story, Gibby. It's not as sad as the part where a 39-year-old kisses a 14-year-old. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's a much sadder tale so to rough. me. Or where the six-year-old ruins all his plastic swords by rubbing <laughs> rocks on them. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, Conan, not a great movie, but it holds a special place for Gibby. All right, Lance, number three. All right, my number three. Um, I've been accused of being something of a cynic. Would we all say that's fair? Yes. Okay. Not the Lance I know. Um, that cynicism can be traced back to my first film, Transformers the Movie, 1986, Nelson Shin. Animated film. The plot is very simple. The Autobots face off against the Decepticons and their new ally, a planet-consuming robot named Unicron, voiced by Orson Welles in his final performance, who can't possibly have thought this is how his career would end. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want you to imagine, so uh, I was eight years old at the time this movie came out, and I want you to imagine, this was long before I became the bad boy of film podcasting. <laughs> and I'm here I am, I'm a huge Transformers fan. 
before that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Today is long before that. Had all the toys, loved the cartoon. So there I am. I'm sitting in the theater. I'm all excited. The lights go down. Within five minutes, I watch in horror as every Autobot is flat out murdered, including Optimus Prime. And I'm sitting there holding a Coke I no longer want, popcorn I can't eat, and the shattered remains of my childhood in my hands. And I have to sit there in this theater for another 80 minutes contemplating how I'm going to pick up the pieces of my life. So why was this creative decision made? Well, according to Flint Dill, one of the writers... This is his quote. I was instructed to eliminate much of the existing product line to make room for the new characters Hasbro was planning to sell. You heard that right. My childhood was profited away so that Hasbro could sell new toys. They had to murder the old characters to ensure <laughs> your parents bought you the new toys. If you go back and you watch this movie again, it's horrible. It, it comes across like a series of Japanime music videos with very little coherence. It symbolizes this really lazy era of an animation where it felt like the animators would get bored and if a sequence were required them to draw 24 frames they just do 16 and then call it a day like there's no fluidity in the movement or action of the characters and everyone everything just looks really jumpy and weird and poorly done the music's good though right no no it's it was sure probably not. pretty good in the time i don't even know if that's true yeah. I, it's famously it, kind of met uh 80s hair bands on the soundtrack right it, all throughout the movie yeah it's i think it's the same band over and over and over again <laughs> just that same yeah song. And, but the thing I about transformers i remember is the toys you know in the show they transform really quickly they're like autobots transform so i remember transferring my toys and doing the sound the whole time but it takes like a minute so it's like <laughs> <laughs> yeah, your mouth would hurt yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's why I rub swords with rocks much easier. <laughs> it was a way, yeah, you were, you were wise. I saw tons of movies as kids. I mean, we saw lots and lots and lots, and I kind of feel bad for my parents taking us to all these terrible movies. But Transformers is one of the ones, the first that I can remember being disappointed in and just kind of leaving the film and thinking film can do this to you. It can let you down. Because I had, I don't know if I'd seen good movies before that, but Transformers affected me like it did you, and I thought, this is not good. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it let me down too, but I think for very different reasons. The quality of the film was the last thing I was thinking about in 1986 i was i was horrified i i vaguely remember getting home and looking at all the toys and just thinking you're dead you're dead <laughs> <Yeah>. everything dies <laughs> but the show was still going on right well no the show well it was but in they they did the new season then it was all the new characters yeah. so if you wanted to keep up with it you had to buy the new toys Crazy. didn't optimus wow. come back as like a different character yeah in the movie yeah he still had that same optimus voice but yeah I, I mean i still vividly remember the moment where he dies in that movie and he's he's just he's had the living hell beat out of him and he just the light goes out of his eyes and his head just goes <laughs> to the to the side and i'm like oh things die but it's weird he came back and you still didn't end up an optimist <laughs> <sighs> that is awesome oh. high five i need to ask did you did you come up with that just now or yes. you did wow just this very mm. moment i really like this quote i just saw orson wells talking about doing the voice of the movie his biographer this was you know he was I guess in poor health at this stage in his life. And yeah. he says, you know what I did this morning? I played the voice of a toy. I play a planet. I menace somebody called something or other. Then I'm destroyed. <laughs> My plan to destroy whoever it is, is thwarted. And I tear myself apart on the screen. He was very I invested. And they, he probably filmed his, his role like in one hour on like a Saturday morning. <laughs> Don Johnson did a voice in this. Uh, Robert Stack was a voice in this. Like they got some fairly high profile actors in this movie. And it, it 
perplexes me how because it's not like all animated movies were cheaply poorly done in the 80s i mean there were there were quality animated films that come out and they just it's like they just didn't feel like putting money yeah. into this one or making it look good yeah gi joe i felt it was the same way it was just kind of thrown up there it yeah. felt like it felt like maybe they were li- sitting in a boardroom and they were looking at the numbers and they were like we don't really need to spend a lot of money on this movie they're gonna buy the toys was it done by the same animation team as the show was it done by like the, the whole same team? I, I, i'm not sure it's a good question I, I my guess is that it is I, because it does it's if they didn't and they use somebody more expensive they really got ripped off because it's the exact same quality of animation that you'd see in the show hmm. and that's that's odd i mean yeah. I, it seems like i do remember i can't think of any examples right now but where you would see the show and it wouldn't look as good and then they would do the movie and it looked great and that was not the case here it probably did on screen seeing it in a theater it had to look better than on your it tv it probably looked bigger i don't think <laughs> yeah. it looked better yeah maybe right what if it didn't look bigger they just put they just wheel a tv in front of the screen like this is what you're used to kids yeah. lap it up <laughs> lap up the misery all right jordan you're number three cue james horner's score here please My number three pick is Commando from 1985, directed by Mark Lester. Old Arnold Schwarzenegger plays John Matrix, a badass black ops army guy who is quietly raising his daughter, played by a very young Alyssa Milano, in some sweet mountaintop chalet. He's visited by his major general in a helicopter, bringing a message that the men from his battalion have all been murdered, and that they are most likely coming for Matrix next. The general leaves and... Well, all hell breaks loose. Some South American bad guys come over, kidnap his daughter, and this sets off a killing spree unparalleled by any others in American cinema until 1993, when Topper Harley of Hot Shots Part (laughs) 2 slaughtered 103 bad guys. In this movie, Arnie ends the lives of a whopping 81 bad dudes. Before any of y'all start crying about Rambo, he did break Commando's record, but not until 2008, and he only beat it by six bad guys. By the way, this information comes straight from the internet's most reputable source, (laughs) moviebodycounts.com. This was uh, the first R-rated movie I ever saw. I want to take this chance to thank Alan Hudson and his family for introducing me to this film when we were young. For the record, I got in big trouble when I got home and accidentally told my parents what I had just watched. How do you accidentally tell your parents? You're like, Mom, Dad, 82 bodies. (laughs) Well, it was 81. Son, you've been watching Commando? (laughs) No. He's just running around like killing invisible people. 82, 83. I came in in guns blazing. Huh. There are some subtleties in this film that I think set it apart and had a big impact on me as a kid. First off, it was easily the most violent thing I'd ever seen, and I loved it. You guys may or may not know, I'm not at all a violent person. I don't like guns. I've never been in a fight. Knives scare me. My biggest fear as a kid was being drafted in the army. I'm a pacifist on every level. But violence in movies, bring it on. I love it. <laughs> Still can't get enough. Um, does Schwarzenegger also share a passionate kiss with Alyssa Milano in this movie? <laughs> he doesn't. It's his daughter, and that would be sick. Thanks and for, as we know, Hollywood types never do anything sick. (laughs) Thanks for that mental picture. While Commando is a far cry from actually being a feminist film, this is where we're really going to get into it, I think it may have sowed some initial seeds of my eventual feminism. There are really only two women in the film, the daughter, played by Alyssa Milano, and a flight attendant that Matrix essentially kidnaps at the airport, played by Ray Don Chong. Yes, this movie is 90 minutes of greased-up Arnie Massacre, but the two women are strong in a way that wasn't common in many man movies up to this point. One might expect Matrix daughter to simply cry and whine about her captivity, but instead she orchestrates her own escape from her boarded up room, 
making use of found objects. And Ray Don Chong's character, Cindy, seems like a departure from the damsels in distress of the time period that we're used to. She's not a dumb blonde bimbo. She's a professional young black woman who is an aspiring pilot. She's not afraid to learn how to launch a rocket. That was a funny scene. Admittedly, she shoots it wrong at first, yeah. but then she shoots it right, saves Arnie's life, and he says... Where'd you learn how to do that? She says, I read the instructions, which mm. seems like <laughs> stupid line. men don't read instructions. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. She even calls the movie what it is, for better or worse, right in the middle. I can't believe this macho bullshit. Which is pretty spot on. Oh, I thought she did. She like, yeah. she like said the title, like, what are you, some kind of <laughs> commando? I can't believe we're in commando. <laughs> <laughs> the hit film. And yeah, the one-liners. Gotta love the one-liners. Uh, probably helped define my sense of humor. I've, I've noticed every time you kill someone, you have a good one-liner afterwards. I always wonder where you. that. Yeah, came. Yeah. I always wonder where that came from. It's mostly from? from here. Yeah, and they're mostly. so good. Thank you. Remember that one guy? I mean, which one? Oh, I know. Yeah. I can't even. When they begged and cried for his life. Yeah, it was so you. crazy. He's like, I'm bleeding and dying, and Jordan's like, one-liner. Well, in this, my favorite one in the Who's movie. Who's crying now? <laughs> I think that's what it was. Yeah. He also talks like Schwarzenegger after yeah. he kills somebody. <laughs> This movie really affected Jordan. <laughs> My favorite one in this movie, he says to a flight attendant just after breaking a man's neck on an airplane, he says, Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. There was a, there was a sequel written to this movie that never got made because Schwarzenegger was not interested in it. It was reworked and later became Die Hard. Yep. What? Wow. Um, Real quick, the uh, screenwriter of this film, Jeff Loeb, who now um, is a famous comic book writer as well and runs Marvel's TV division, wrote another film this same year, which was Teen Wolf, which is a very different <laughs> type of Great film. movie, though. Yeah. Great movie. There, uh, was, there was whole bits in Teen Wolf that they had to end up on the cutting room floor where Teen Wolf just mauls and <laughs> tears people up and gives one liner after eating them. So, we, so, so Jeff Loeb that year, he's working on two scripts. People are like, hey, Loeb, what are you working on? Uh, I'm working on uh, two things. This movie about this uh, commando who just kills like tons of people. And also uh, this other thing about a kid who turns into a uh, wolf. <laughs> <laughs> a wolf? <laughs> this also says that the film was originally conceived as a vehicle for Gene Simmons of Kiss. <laughs> What? Oh, that would have been terrible. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Well, there was, a, kid, there was a Kiss movie in the 70s. This yeah. oh, okay. Alrighty, my number three. From my heart and from my hand, why don't people understand my intention? Weird Science, the 1985 John Hughes movie about two teenage nerds, Gary and Wyatt, left home alone for the weekend, who create their perfect woman out of some combination of science, magic, and a ridiculously inaccurate computer hacking scene. Hughes directed two movies released in 1985, and really the only thing they have in common is Anthony Michael Hall. Whereas The Breakfast Club was a more realistic and lasting look at high school social structure, Weird Science is a lot weirder. I didn't know this until doing research, but producer Joel Silver owned the rights to the title Weird Science, a 1950s anthology comic series similar to Tales from the Crypt, but apparently the plot was all John Hughes, despite the fact that there was a similar story in the comics called Made of the Future about a man who builds a wife from a kid. Quick side note, Joel Silver, same year, also produced Commando. What? Hmm. This is kind of the ultimate preteen boy fantasy. Make the girl of your dreams. She looks exactly like you want, acts exactly like you want. She even works a little magic, giving the boys fancy clothes and cars and fake IDs. And you can see why any kid would find this appealing. In the movie, Wyatt has an older brother played by Bill Paxton. And I also have an older brother. And for whatever reason, my brother loved this Bill Paxton character. And he was always doing the lines because um, it was kind of the ultimate like bully older brother. Paxton plays the hilarious abusive militant older brother Chet. Uh, one of my favorite bits is when one of the boys come home drunk and Chet attempts to get them to throw up by asking, how about 
a nice, greasy pork sandwich served in a dirty ashtray. And then burps in their faces. He's brilliant and over the top in this. But even Chet gets his comeuppance in the third act. He literally gets turned into a pile of shit. Uh, and the third act gets super weird when the boy's party is interrupted by changes in gravity, a mutant biker gang, and a ballistic missile showing up in the middle of their house. And a side note in this third act, Bill Paxton apparently snuck back in as an extra to do this final party scene uh, wearing a disguise. He was like in glasses and a hat. Gotta love that Paxton. <laughs> yeah. um, looking back on this film as an adult, it seems clear that it's an allegory for pornography in the ways that boys are brought up to look at women as objects, um, or at least preteen boys fantasy version of women but in the end they realize their perfect controlled version of a woman is no match for the real thing i never loved this movie but i did love the tv show with vanessa angel boom i was gonna mention that that's a it's a great tv show i loved it i didn't even know there was a tv show I didn't either wow yeah it was really funny it was, when on did, USA. When was, it, on? it was about five or six seasons oh, yeah. early 90s the guy that played the anthony michael hall character in the tv show ended up marrying jenny mccarthy at some point wow life. thanks for the us, us weekly, weekly update. update next up gibby tells us who brad pitt was seen canoodling with <laughs> Marianne Cotillard. <laughs> you really, you really did it. <laughs> to your point, Jordan, I don't. I've never loved this movie either. I think it's very rooted in nostalgia, and I'd be very curious to see how kids watching it for the first time today would react to it. Like, it, it was this movie beloved just because we grew up with it, or would kids today get it and connect with it and like it? It's certainly wacky, but I think the way that the two main boys are played, it, it still taps into things that actual teenagers dealt with in those days. Right? You There's know, a being lot of the nerds, in yeah, the trying to get girls and the girls not looking at them, and yeah, um, that just kind of special bond that you have between two friends. There's a lot of those kind of Hughes moments in there, but it's certainly, the weird stuff is what makes yeah. it the kind of sci-fi element. Yeah, it showed just like how uptight a kid I was. One of the problems I always have with this movie is I would sit there and I would be asking these other questions on my head like, so does she have a soul? Is she sad she's not <laughs> you real? You thought that as a kid? Like, how will she get like a social security number? Like, how does she, yeah. I, I seriously was thinking all this stuff as a kid. Like, Thank you, Transformers. Been, I know, yeah, exactly. And Lance is like, who's going to do her taxes? Yeah, I really need to relax when I was a kid. Yeah, I was. I was worried about stuff like that. How will she get income? I don't... She has no education. She's magic. She can create money. I guess so. Yeah, the ending is super weird. It kind of always kind of freaked me out about this movie, just how weird the third act is compared to the first two. How many movies are there where the end doesn't freak you out? <laughs> Five. <laughs> You are freaked out a lot. You next episode will be top movies. Gibby's Guys, not I have freaked a limited, out. I have a limited vocabulary, so yeah. <laughs> freaked out means loved. You I don't just, know. Yeah, you have a wide range of things that freak you out. I've noticed. Uh, uh, all right, Gibby, number two. Okay, so my number two film from childhood is from 1985. It is the Joe Dante film Explorers. This is the story of three kids. Ben, played by a very young Ethan Hawke, who's a relatively normal but socially shy kid who loves sci-fi movies and comics. His best friend Wolfgang played by River Phoenix, also in his film debut. A super smart nerd who apparently is smarter than anybody in the whole world. And then their new friend Darren, the poor kid from the wrong side of the tracks with the rough home life. As I mentioned earlier, this is a film debut for both Hawk and Phoenix, and they both give great performances, and you see why they would go on to become such great actors until they died of an overdose on the side of a Hollywood thing. <laughs> Bar. <laughs> Got heavy, guys. <laughs> That took a dark <laughs> turn. <laughs> wow. I didn't write that down. That just Plus, I'm curious what a Hollywood thing is that he died on the side of. Hollywood bar. Uh, sorry. Hollywood what? Bar. Bar. Wasn't bar. Yeah. Are you okay. going to go into the explicit <laughs> description of what happened? Both of them? Or? No, one of them did. Okay. Until one of them died. Okay. Sorry. So the Ethan Hawke character has been having really vivid dreams 
<laughs> with terrible 80s computer graphics, but they're really actually parts of computers, and he and Wolfgang realize they are actually instructions on how to make a spaceship. The movie goes from there with them figuring out how to build this spaceship, which is out of a used Tilt-A-Whirl, and eventually they do go to outer space uh, and see who's been sending them these messages. So much of the movie's really about, I think it's really about these three friends coming together, just about the importance of having close friends and being a part of a community as you're, as you're young. But Dante and the, the, despite the totally outlandish premise, Dante and the three kids do a great job of grounding it in reality. I mean, I really thought that this could happen, that we could all create a spaceship and somehow get to outer space based upon the science in this movie. Well, that's, that's pretty f***ing stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Lance, remember when you thought hoverboards were real well into college? Lance, remember when you were worried about the girl from Weird Science having a social security number? None of this is documented or I don't know what any of you guys are talking about. But I, I just think it's a sweet and exciting film about friendship and uh, adventure. So I think it really touched a nerve with me because I was a shy, quiet kid who loved science fiction and reading and that sort of thing, uh, much like Ethan Hawke's character. So this may surprise a lot of you out there, but uh, I wasn't the most popular kid growing up. I was a little weird and apparently rubbed rocks on plastic swords. I really like this movie because it, it leads you to the dreams do come true and that one day I could go to outer space in a tilt-a-whirl. Uh, that, that part was not true. that's a very good lesson. To yeah, that that's, that's, that. the, that's the lesson I got from Explorers. <laughs> did you ever try to build a spaceship like that? I probably did. I was unsuccessful. I, I think I did that too and it would last for about five minutes and we realized you can't make a spaceship out of leaves. Yeah, it's yeah. not going to work. Like, uh, that doesn't work. Yeah. Um, is it weird that I've never heard of this movie? I, I think yes. that's pretty weird. I, I, wow. I Somehow I, I made it through the 80s without ever even... I looked this up and I thought this would jog something for me and I, I have no idea what this movie is. Huh. I've never seen it. I saw it at a science center uh, sleepover when I was like <laughs> seven or eight. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Jordan wins nerd award. I don't want to hear yeah. it. Uh, I have very specific and fond memories of this. I believe seventh grade birthday, friends from school came over. We uh, rented this movie and watched it. I, like, I remember sitting in my living room and watching this movie on that birthday. Yeah. Um, I, I'm sorry. We were friends in seventh grade. Ooh. Oh, seven year old. Seven. Good. S- turning seven. Ooh, that was a close one. Seventh oh birthday, not seventh yeah. grade. Okay. No, I, I I watched the first twenty minutes of it this morning. It's the first time I'd seen it in probably fifteen years, and it's still. I mean, it's really funny. It has a good sense of humor, as most Joe Dante movies do. I think he's a pretty unsung director from the eighties and early nineties. Absolutely agree with that. Uh, there, there's can this you, really. Can you quickly name some of his other? Yeah. Okay. From the, from so Gremlins. You know, I think he's an interesting director. I'd, I'd argue, and I am arguing that he had a, about as good of a run in the mid '80s to early '90s as anybody. So here's his movies: uh, Gremlins, 1984; Explorers, '85. And he did a couple of amazing stories at that that television show. Mm-hmm. Then Inner Space, Burbs, Gremlins 2, which I'd say is uh, actually better than Gremlins 1. What? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, what? I think so too. That's surprising to me. And, and then it ended on, and it ended in '93 with Matinee, which is a wonderfully sweet and good film. But I don't know why he's often left off in some of the great directors. Maybe because his last 20 years he hasn't done a whole lot. He made some really, really good movies. I don't think he ever made a like great, great movie. Right. And I think that's why you don't hear much about him. I think, I think a lot of times directors can make one great movie, and then a lot of their that makes a lot of their really good movies get more notice and exposure. And I think if he had just had that one breakthrough type movie, he would be, and I don't mean that as a criticism because he's awesome. I mean, he made some wonderful films and, um, but you're Gremlins right. Gremlins is probably quite, the closest to that, but none of those yeah. other movies reach that level. Yeah. Well, in Gremlins, Gremlins in the eighties was that movie, but it hasn't really, I don't think maintained that. Yeah. Um, 
momentum that it had then. Yeah, he's, he's definitely got an off-kilter, zany sense of humor, and that runs through this movie, too, in all of his movies. He has a sensibility that seemed to be very common in the 80s, but doesn't, it isn't as you know sought after now, right. which is unfortunate. But yeah. I, I, Explorers, good film. Lance, number two. My number two is The Never-Ending Story, Wolfgang Peterson's uh, 1984 film follows the story of a boy named Bastion, a bullied loner and perpetual dreamer who finds a mysterious book and gets wrapped up in its story about a mythical land that is facing ruin and the young hero named Atreyu and his quest to save it. As Bastion reads, the lines between reality and fantasy get blurred as he begins to get pulled into the story. So uh, one thing that's interesting to me about looking at kids' movies now versus uh, kids' movies when we were growing up is that kids' movies today seem to have kind of a safety net under them like they either stay away from dark subject matter or they handle it very very you know gingerly the 80s weren't like that they would take that safety net throw it in a pile with your innocence hopes and dreams and just (laughs) light it all on fire this story is a great example of that and it starts with the hero's horse drowning in a swamp because he's too sad to keep living while our hero screams and cries and pleads and it ends with the magical world we've been transported to quite literally being completely destroyed and the thing about this is that also seems to be what makes this movie work and as a kid i remember loving the fact that i wasn't being treated with kid gloves like I, I, I could even recognize and appreciate that as a, you know, as a, as an eight-year-old. Nothing is polished and made pretty in this movie, and there's an intensity and a seriousness that it uses in its approach that you could appreciate even as a kid. It's a German production with a German director based on a German book, and this film was shot in Germany. And German culture has kind of a rough edge to it anyway that I think got filtered into this movie, and that is key to its success. And like, had this been an, an entirely American film, I think something would have been missing because it would have felt too sanitized and familiar and safe. But I think to American audiences something felt off about it and not off in a bad way like something was wrong but off in a way that you did feel like you were going to another place and the name of the land is actually Fantasia by the way I'll say this too about this movie if you thought they didn't care about the kids as viewers they they didn't care about the kids as actors either Noah Hathaway who plays Atreyu in the scene where the horse drowns was thrown off the horse then stepped on he was then pulled underwater by the elevator rig that they had set up and when he was brought back to the surface he was unconscious he was 12 years old Uh, Germans right (laughs) he's he's old enough there to know better (laughs) <laughs> wow. I'll teach you being never ending story. I remember it just blowing my mind. I was like, wait, 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 hold on, back up. This story is never ending. That yeah. blew me away too. <laughs> like I remember looking at the runtime and just assuming it would have like an infinity <laughs> thing on it. Yeah, I remember being sad when it ended. It's like it's over. Yeah, this was this was poorly advertised. This is a never ending story. But this movie, I, I don't know if there was experience with you guys, but like I was in fourth or fifth grade when this came out, and this was the movie everybody was talking about in the schoolyard. I mean, we were all obsessed with this movie. The luck- especially popular among girls in the uh that's not true. Apparently, no. also Lance. Also not. No, no. I don't. I don't. Actually, I don't know that. I mean, a lot of girls may have liked this movie. I, I mean, it was very popular with boys. No, not in my experience. <laughs> Huh. I really like this movie. It, it, like you mentioned, it has a deep sense of sadness kind of running through it. Remember the scene at the end with the big rock monster and everything's getting torn away, and it's just sad. Yeah. And I think Barrett Oliver, who plays the, did it freak you out? The boy reading. I don't. It actually didn't freak me out. What freaked me out in this movie was the was that bear, the nothingness bear, whatever it was, that big monster at the end. That oh, it's crazy. a. I think it was like a it was wolf. Terrifying. Yeah, yeah it was a big wolf. That's what it was. But I think Barrett Oliver, who plays the boy in you know, the Germany or whatever, the real world. He was kind of the go-to kid in the 80s for... Yeah, he was in a lot of stuff. A real empathetic kid with a sense of sadness. He was Daryl and Cocoon. I mean, the, the name of what they're fighting in this movie is The Nothing. 
or the nothingness. Like it's the most like existential yeah. crisis you could possibly <laughs> throw Isn't in your kids' movie. fascinating though is that, and I, I feel like a lot of my childhood movies are like this because you, you go back and you revisit them and they're not how you remember. Like as yeah. a kid, like I don't remember watching that and being sad though. I remember watching it and like you disappeared into this fantasy world and it was just cool. Like yeah. the memories I have of films aren't of as a kid aren't necessarily like sadness or joy. They're like aesthetic things. Like I remember like, you know, the look of the films and the feel of the films not the darkness of right them. it's right. weird the way you guys describe this movie and talk about it makes me feel like i should love this movie but i hated this movie as a kid huh. I, I haven't seen it since i was probably six and I, I mean i vividly remember hating it and never ever wanting to see it again could it be because of that sense of sadness and no i'm i'm into that like that's in that's the part that six? sounds that's, good that me. really surprised this seems like a movie you would have loved i didn't know you as a kid but i mean it seems like a movie knowing adult you that kid you would have liked it seems that way but I you didn't. may have because seen it around the time you saw commando and this does not compare to commando <laughs> well it's 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 such a creative film i mean it, it entirely creates its own mythology and does it very effectively and a lot of not a lot of movies can do that well right i mean every character in it is unique and interesting and has their own story and backstory i mean it just the whole thing just works really well it's the kind of thing where like you would have expected this to become a bigger thing and it did they did make sequels to this but i think the problem with the sequels i remember seeing the second one and it suffered from that problem it was it was an american movie now right, it didn't yeah. have that germanness to it that took you out of that safe space that you were in as, as an american kid and so for that reason this the, you know none of the follow-ups were ever as effective and creepy as this one was i don't think were you thinking that atreyu drowned himself because he was worried about taxes and social security (laughs) you mean artex the horse Oh, Artex. It was his horse that drowned, yeah. Oh, Atreus the boy. Are you sure you've seen this film? <laughs> yeah, it was, it was 29, uh, years yeah, ago. 29 years ago. Jordan, number two. My number two is Ernest Goes to Camp, written and directed by John Cherry in 1987. This was the first in a long series of Ernest movies starring Jim Varney as Ernest P. Worrell, a dim-witted but lovable know-it-all who is as clumsy as he is good-hearted. This adventure has Ernest working at Camp Kikakee as a handyman that is aspiring to be a camp counselor. When Camp Kikaki teams up with the local juvenile detention center to give a group of young delinquents a second chance, Ernest is recruited as their counselor. Then they lead the charge against an evil mining company that aims to mine a rare mineral from the land occupied by the camp. This movie is crazy, and I was obsessed with it as a kid. Uh, when I was 10 or 11, my friend Colby and I watched it four times in one day. That is not an exaggeration. That literally wow. happened. And Colby were bored. Uh, we had rented it and so we had to return it the next day and oh, so yeah. we wanted to watch it as <laughs> many times buck, yeah. because at that yeah. you know who knows when we could have seen it again yep probably the next day when you could have rented it again. <laughs> so I doubt that this was flying off the shelves at home video. I have clear memories of literally rolling on the floor laughing at Ernest's antics. <laughs> I, 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 like, I remember the carpeted floor in his living room. I, I just like thought it was We're all looking crying. at Jordan really yeah. confused right now. I thought now. it was the funniest movie I'd ever seen in my Guys, life. Guys, I just remember like crying into that carpet, <laughs> vomit coming out of my mouth, <laughs> laughing, laughing so, so hard. hard. Yeah. At Ernest P. Worrell. Well, so I watched it again recently, and I was laughing out loud before I'd even gotten three minutes in. This no, was a, this a, is, a week this ago. This is just getting no. worse and worse. It's, it's true. true. No, I saw it again two years ago, and this is terrible. No, it is hilarious. <laughs> Sorry, we just ruined your childhood. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what ruined my childhood is. First of all, I loved this movie when I was a kid, and I remember watching it over and over again just like you yeah. did. Yeah. I was just doing some research, and I found out that Ernest was created by a advertising agency. Yeah, John Cherry, the director. Yeah, which... Oh, yeah. For milk, crushes right? my well. <laughs> I'll, I'll, well, I was. Gonna I was you can get into it, but yeah. uh, but I remember seeing Ernest on commercials before seeing the movie, yeah. right? 
Um, but it was like like local heating and air. Like right. It was like Augusta, Georgia or something like he that. Did, he did commercials all over the country. Sometimes he would film 25 a day. Oh, really? But they basically all had the same premise. Yeah. It was like, him hey, going Vern. to visit Vern. Yeah. And he would talk about whatever product it was. Surprisingly, this has a 62% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, you it's know fresh. why? Because it's awesome. No, it's not awesome. Uh, However, Varney was nominated for a Golden Raspberry Award that year for Worst New Star. Oh really? Yeah. That's well, he also won a daytime Emmy for the TV show. So wait, there was a TV, there was a TV show? show. What? Yes, there was a TV show. I remember renting a VHS tapes at Blockbuster Video of Ernest. Yeah, it's called Rivers. Hey Hey Vern. It's yeah. Ernest. This is insane. They were yeah. terrible. So it went. It basically it went from commercials to the first movie to the TV show, and then a bunch of movies after yeah. that. Which I think there might be nine total. I stopped after he went to jail. The first three are great. Saved Christmas. Uh, uh, hey Halloween. Christmas. Christmas. I guess people, I saw four of them. A lot of people like Scared Stupid a lot. Yeah. I found it <laughs> atrocious. Ernest Goes to Africa is maybe the worst thing that <laughs> yeah, ever I happened. I think that's, that's, that's a very that's bad idea. I, I felt like four. I could add anything to the end of that, uh, and it's already a movie. Yeah. 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 Ernest well, Goes to Golden Corral. <laughs> Ernest's wife gets menopause. <laughs> um, gets menopause? <laughs> Ernest's wife. Catches menopause. Catches, it, catches a bad case of the menopause. <laughs> This movie was really a sense of humor defining milestone for me. It doesn't it doesn't get any sillier than this, and I love silly humor. It's got ridiculous slapstick, brilliant one-liners, complete absurdities, gross outs. It's got it all. Teamed up with Varney's... Just wait, in your mind, that, that's, 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 your top that's tier all. Of humor. That's when I was a kid, that was all. <laughs> that's it's all. That's, it. I mean, that's the majority of what I like. Yeah. Yep, in, you're in right, humor. Jordan. That's everything. What are some other humors? Uh, I'm not, yeah. Yeah, exactly. There's none. Yeah. Subtlety, maybe? Yeah. Good humor? No. There are some heartbreaking moments in this movie. There's a scene where Ernest sings this song. Oh, yeah. And you remember this? Gee, I'm glad it's raining. Yeah. Gee, I'm glad it's raining. There's always something to be thankful for. And and at this point, Ernest is is kind of this friendless but happy adult who wants nothing more than the acceptance of these kids. Yes. And they have done nothing but mock and abuse and assault him. And he has had to like he's had to get a shot or something because they gave him poison ivy and one of their cruel pranks. And the lyrics of this song, I'm awfully glad it's raining because no one sees the teardrops when it pours, and no one knows the thunder as your heart breaks in the sky. Sure am glad it's raining. The gentle river soothes the pain inside. I thought I had found someone I could count on till the end. What they needed was a hero. All I needed was a friend. He got this in one take, and they said after the cut, everybody on the set was bawling. Yeah, it's. I, I think it's at that point in the movie that, that it reaches this like emotional yeah. sort of climax that, at least from 25% of this table, thinks is awesome. My number two, Pee-wee's Big Adventure, 1985 film. It follows the cross-country adventure of Pee-wee Herman, a man-child dressed in what looks like a ventriloquist dummy suit as he searches for his stolen bike. It's really a series of skits and sketches with the interesting people he meets along the way, including a creepy truck driver named Large Marge in a scene that terrified me as a kid. And when they finally pulled the driver's body from the twisted, burning wreck, it looked like this. <laughs> There's a great bit of claymation effects uh, that I remember pausing and going frame by frame on my VCR after first seeing that scene. And another one of my favorite scenes, he runs across a biker gang called Satan's Helpers, which is great, <laughs> who want to beat him up after he knocks all their bikes over. Uh, but then he wins them over by putting a coin in the jukebox and dancing to tequila. Tequila. <laughs> 
Uh, it's so incredibly creative. I still do that dance sometimes. Yeah, or try to do yeah. it. Yeah, after he borrows platform shoes from mm-hmm. the um, the cook. Uh, it's so incredibly creative and funny. And star Paul Rubens is a hundred percent committed to this performance. And I think Pee Wee Herman might be one of my favorite characters of all time. I was eight years old when this movie came out, and by that time, comedian Paul Rubens had created a successful stage show called The Pee Wee Herman Show. He created the show in 1980 after being rejected for SNL, a spot that went to Gilbert Godfrey instead. That was um, not a that great was a success. decision there. The show was inspired by low-budget 1950s kids shows like Howdy Doody and was a success in comedy theaters around L.A. before becoming an HBO special. And he would do midnight shows for adults and matinees for children. So it's a rare kind of you know yeah. crossover for both of those worlds. Ruben initially created the show for adults, but once he realized the impact on kids, he took being a role model seriously, making the show morally positive and going to great lengths to make sure he was never photographed smoking, despite the fact that he was a heavy smoker. He even refused to endorse candy bars and created his own sugar-free cereal called Ralston Purina Pee Wee Chow Cereal. Or this sucks. Yeah, which quickly <laughs> failed because apparently uh, it tasted terrible. <laughs> he was approached by Warner Brothers to write a movie based on the character, and originally he set out to remake Pollyanna with Pee Wee in the Haley Mills role. Rubens claims that this is his favorite film. But after seeing everyone on the back lot at Warner Brothers riding bicycles, he got the idea to do a loose retelling of The Bicycle Thief. The late Phil Hartman was also a writer on the film uh, and also part of his group when he was putting together his show as they both came out of the groundlings in LA. The movie is directed by Tim Burton in his feature debut and you can see what appealed to him in this story. Like most Burton movies, Pee Wee is an outcast, an oddball. Uh, But since the story is from his perspective, it makes Pee Wee seem like the only normal one in the world. He continued the character on TV with the amazing show Pee Wee's Playhouse and there's really been nothing else quite like Pee Wee before or after it. It's pretty easily my favorite Tim Burton film. Is it really? Yeah, I I love this movie so much. Unfortunately, you can't talk about Pee Wee without talking about Ruben's arrest for Indian exposure in 1991. No, I think you could probably talk about that. <laughs> I don't know why you had to bring that up for Mr. Rubens. <laughs> uh, temporarily ruined his career for about a decade, but he's since picked the character back up with a movie released on Netflix earlier this year. For me, Pee-wee's Big Adventure reminds me a lot of Big, the Tom Hanks film, and that Pee-wee is essentially a kid in a grown-up's body. And he lives like every kid wished he could live in a fun house with fun friends doing fun things, but on his own and making his own decisions. It's every kid's dream to stay a kid, but live in a grown-up's world. And it's a running theme in my own life and something we explored a lot in our short film Rooney's World, which was also about a kid's show host refusing to grow up. In fact, if I'm honest, it's something I still long for even now to be a kid in an otherwise grown-up world. Yeah, it's funny. We just talked about, and with Ernest, a character who transcends his actual you know, creator. And here we go with kind of another one. The Pee Wee character to me is like, I feel like entire dissertations could be written about this character because I can't figure out why this works, but it does. Yeah. And, and I also can't figure out, like I'm trying to imagine a grown adult with other grown adults comedy writers coming up with this character thinking it's a good idea then pitching it to other grown adults and them saying yeah we got to do this like it just it, on paper this it makes, makes no sense it yeah. makes no sense and I whatsoever think a big and it part works. of that is Ruben's performance and that he's 1000% Pee Wee Herman I think that's it and he also is this kind of like Johnny Appleseed character where he goes to, through all these different cultures and just spreads happiness and yeah. love and I think there's this positivity that that kind of I don't know I, I feel like I'm giving this like really in-depth analysis of Pee Wee Herman but it does I mean there's something to that where 
where it's like he spreads optimism and happiness, and I think that's why this character works for both adults and kids. Yeah. My favorite part of this movie easily is the movie inside of the movie, right, where we get to see Paul Rubens play Beijing Mr. Herman. No, it's the best. Yeah, that's my favorite line in the whole movie. And the movie, I rewatched some clips earlier last night. Earlier last night? Earlier this week. And um, it's hilarious. Oh, yeah. Like, this movie is still really funny. Yeah, I think it holds up a lot better than Ernest Goes to Camp. <laughs> <laughs> That's not really saying much. Yeah. yeah. No, wow. but, wow, I think, really? I think this, but I do think this movie holds up really strongly. You know it holds up better than Ernest Goes to Camp? Every, Every movie. other movie from the 80s? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Give me your number one childhood film. It's the 1985 mystery comedy Clue. This is based on the board game Sorry. at first i thought you made a mistake you're like oh i'm sorry no just kidding it was based on clue the board game basically a story of six guests who are all seemingly unrelated invited to a big dinner party at a fancy mansion thrown by the mysterious mr body the main kind of host of the evening is the butler wadsworth played by the never better tim curry and then there's a crew of Mm. other employees around the house but Mm. he was never better than in clue Mm. Gibby says. <laughs> there, there you go. Yep. So there's a crew of other em- employees around the house, like the chef and the and the maid. And the movie really gets going when Mr. Body is mysteriously murdered during a blackout. And then more and more characters are getting killed off, and the suspect list is growing. So uh, to me, this movie is just a lot of fun. Uh, I've probably watched this 20 to 30 times between the ages of 8 and 14. It's just an excellent bit of comedy. It's got a great cast. Christopher Lloyd, which is the same year he played Doc Brown. Martin Mull, Michael McKeon, Madeline Kahn, Tim Curry. Now, I couldn't say these are titans of comedy from the 80s, but they're all really good kind of character actors. Some of them. Yeah. McKean, some of them are. McKean. So this movie has a mix of slapstick, hum- slapstick, 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 this movie has a mix of slapstick humor, intellectual humor, some great wordplay, and really some pretty body humor for a PG rated film. Mr. Body, body humor? Yep. Mr. So body what humor. What is body humor? Bowdy. B-A-W-D-Y. <laughs> is it body raunchy. humor? I guess slapstick? I said raunchy, but bowdy? I said bowdy. <laughs> oh, you mean, like, you mean like gross body. out like body, body function? Body? Like, B-A-W-D-Y? B-A-W-D-Y. Yeah. It means oh. kind of raunchy. Oh. Gotcha. Got it. Feels like they got this cast together and they all rehearsed it a million times before the cameras mm-hmm. showed up mm-hmm. because they're all so quick and so on mm-hmm. uh, and it's so much fun to watch because of yeah. that. Love, love, love this movie. The, the, the miracle of this film is that you can A, make a movie based on a board game and then B, that it can actually be awesome. Well, Which, they did the same that, with Battleship, right? <laughs> yeah. Does anybody uh, know the history of it? Like how the board game got to be part of it? Or was the board game come first? Or? Yeah, the board game was first. I mean, board games are around since Well, no, I mean, in terms of like, oh, we're going to make a movie out of this board game. Or was it, we have this script, let's put the name Clue on it. That would have been a good thing to look at. I up. think it started yeah, with the board game. Have, no, yeah, I, I did. I read an article. Game, it all... did start with the board game. John Landis was heavily involved in it. And um, yeah, they, they shopped it to several directors. And then finally somebody said, yeah, I'll do it. Director's name, Jonathan Lynn, I believe. Yeah, he went on um, to make some pretty good comedies. Yeah, so no, it started with the board game. Why somebody thought a board game will make a great movie, I don't know, but hats off to them, wherever they are. This movie, it was very underappreciated when it came out. I think part of the problem is that it is such a smart and fast-paced script that it's hard for an audience to keep up with. Mm -hmm. And and since then, it's found a very devoted cult following, and it has midnight screenings. It's greatly appreciated by a lot of people. And I read interviews with a lot of the actors who talked about how people constantly come up to them and tell them their favorite movie is Clue. The Madeline Kahn scene where she's trying to explain how much she hates one of the other characters should be put on a permanent loop and displayed in the Smithsonian so every American can see it. Yes, I did it. I killed Yvette. I hated her so much. It, it, the, it flamed, flames, flames on the side of my face, breathing, breath, heaving breaths, 
You can't just hear it. You have to watch it because as she's talking, it shows all the other characters trying to understand what she's saying, <laughs> cutting, like confused as to as she just struggles to get out her hatred of this person that she can't put into words. It's absolutely incredible. Yeah, it's much like me trying to explain movies on here or words other than freaking. Eerily similar. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that this movie's famous for is they, they filmed three separate endings. Uh, there was an A ending, a B ending, and a C ending. And if, when you looked it up in the paper as you went, it would say that this movie Showtime is the A ending or the B. So you could go see every single one. Oh, wow. And the idea, what, what Jonathan Lynn was trying to do was he was thinking, well, this would be a great revenue ad because people will go see the movie three times. And instead, what happened was people were just so confused by it that they just <laughs> didn't end up going to see it at all. They're like, is there three different movies? Yeah. It, yeah. Like, it perplexed everyone what they were trying to do. So it actually ended up hurting the film. Huh. Yeah, but I on mean, home video, when that when that second ending comes up, that was yeah. so cool as yeah, a kid. Yeah, yeah, it's awesome. Now, it, it, in what Lance said, and not every newspaper did that. Some of them would just say, clue, you know, one o'clock, four o'clock, six o'clock. But the people, I mean, I imagine that there's somebody out in America who went and watched this like eight to ten times in the theaters. Like, I got to see a different got ending. The same movie. Got the same ending. Yeah, it's it's and it's easy to say that that oh that was a gimmicky thing they did, but it really wasn't because it was playing into the board game where you could have multiple different right. endings. Yeah. It was a natural fit to do for this yeah, movie. And it was I'm a not great sure idea. that would work on anything else. But also, I would say I'm not sure the movie works with only one ending without watching the. Other I agree. Ones. Right. I agree. I liked it a lot better. And isn't that amazing that it's a movie about solving a mystery and it doesn't give you one. <laughs> answer for it <laughs> and you're still point. extremely satisfied yeah, that's incredible yeah. but one of the endings there's this great scene between leslie ann warren and tim curry where they argue about the number of bullets left in the gun the game's up scarlet there are no more bullets left in that gun oh, come on you don't think i'm gonna fall for that old trick it's not a trick there was one shot at mr body in the study two for the chandelier two at the lounge door and one for the singing telegram that's not six one plus two plus two plus one uh-uh there was only one shot that got the chandelier. That's one plus two plus one plus one. Even if you were right, that would be one plus one plus two plus one, not one plus two plus one plus one. Okay, fine. One plus two plus one. Shut up! It's filled with stuff like that. Yeah. Can you imagine if something like Six Sense did like three different endings at the end? <laughs> or this could have happened. <laughs> hey, great pick. Congratulations. Gibby. Thank you, Jordan. Thanks, guys. Uh, Lance, you're number one. This marks a uh, milestone on uh, Four Friends Fight About Film because it'll be the first time we are hitting a movie for the second time. Uh, my next film is Back to the Future, Robert Zemeckis' 1985 film. Follows the story of Marty McFly's. He tra- you know what? It feels redundant <laughs> to give the plot of this movie <laughs> because everyone knows it, and I think that is a testament to how interwoven it is in the fabric of our culture. I actually, I was really hesitant to include this again because we did bring it up, but it's just a matter of time we're going like to start hitting films ago. again. Yeah, it, it, it was recent. For me, though, it would be dishonest not to really put this movie in there because I, this was the movie that made me love movies. I mean, th- this is the movie that introduced me to film and made it such an integral part of my life. So if movies are a virus, this was like patient zero for me. I mean, this is where it all really began for me. The, the movie, you know, we t- and we did talk about this a little bit a couple weeks ago, but the movie plays into several fantasies. The idea that we can quickly fix things in our life, the idea of meeting our parents when they were younger, and just the overall fantasy of time travel, which is just creates so many endless possibilities that your mind just spins with it. People often say, why are there so many bad movies? And I think as people who've actually made movies, and I don't know if you guys would agree with this, but the more I understand about the filmmaking process, the more I realize it's actually a miracle that any good movies ever get made. Mm -hmm. So many things have to come together in just the right proportion and just the right way. And Back to the Future is an example of one of those rare magical moments where everything went right. You know, we've talked before about how like movies are like a symphony and this was, and everybody's got to be playing their part. And this was the right script with the right director, the right actor. And and one thing to point out is the music. It's not a coincidence 
that if you look at the, a lot of the greatest movies ever made, that they also have the greatest scores of all time. And the music, to me, absolutely propelled this this movie from being a really good movie to a great movie. Everything down to like the little chimes, the the magical chimes. You know, we look back on movies now and you think back to like, what are the great films? And, you know, people say Casablanca and Citizen Kane. I think 50 years from now, when people think back on the great movies of this era, Back to the Future will will surely be on that list. Yeah, yeah probably. It's, it's very there's influential. It's definitely true that all the pieces have to come together. But I think that there's another element on top of that. And part of that is magic and something invisible and something that has to be on top of all those perfect elements. And that's something that... To me, Back to the Future is one of these like really magical movies that mm-hmm. it just sucks you in, takes you away to another place. And for me, you know, Jordan always talks about his perfect casting. Every person is a hundred percent that mm-hmm. character mm-hmm. and brings it a hundred percent. Yeah, down yeah, to the bald principle that yeah, they're all has an so age incredible. In years. Yeah. And they all play it in the, with this like weird kind of twist too, in that they're of a time and can only exist in that movie. Like you couldn't pull mm. those characters out and put them in different movies and have them work. Yeah. And again, this is a movie like as we have, if, as we've gotten into production and actual filmmaking, I've grown to appreciate this movie more and more over the years because when I look at it, I'm just like, everything just worked perfectly. And you realize, you know, when you're working on a movie, how many things can and often do go wrong. But something did go wrong, right? I mean, they shot some before yep. recasting. Yep. Shot Eric Stoltz for, I think, six weeks. You can still go online and see some of the clips with him in it. You know, that, that's a great example of the right actor for the right role. He And Eric Stoltz is a great actor. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he was in a lot of great movies in the 80s. He just didn't have that comic sensibility that they needed. And Michael J. Fox just happened to be there, like, right for the picking, like, off off of Family Ties, and he was perfect. Yeah, that's yeah. always one of the saddest Hollywood stories to me. <sighs> I know. I know. I, I always wonder how he deals with that. Yeah. Like, if it, or if Eric Stoltz is the type, is like, no, nope, that was the right decision, and it was the right thing. Or if he just sits there every night and has, like, a, a dartboard with his multi-million dollar mansion? Maybe. His, I don't know yeah. if he has a multi my, Well, he, he, he might have a bigger mansion if he goes <laughs> to the future. Yeah. But, you know, does he have, like, a like on the dartboard, like, Michael J. Fox's <laughs> face, and he's just throwing stuff at it every night? You know, I, I don't I, know. I like to assume that, that he's a, a reasonable, you yeah. know, kind person that he wished Parkinson's upon Michael J. Fox. <laughs> I'm sorry. Ooh. <laughs> I had that bubbling up in my head. I'm officially no longer the bad boy of film (laughs) podcasting. I give the mantle to you, Gibby. Wow. Wow. All right, Jordan, you're number one. My number one is from 1987, and it is the fourth movie in Rob Reiner's superb seven-movie run of directorial masterpieces, The Princess Bride. Starring Carrie Yules, Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin. How do you? How do you? I think it's Elwes. Really? Yeah, Elwes. Yeah. Elwes. I said it. Yeah. yeah. Starring yeah. Carrie Elwes. Really? I'm not, I feel like I've never heard of that. It's way. certainly not Yules. Who I, I think is one of our most underrated actors. Right. He yeah. did so many great. I mean, part of it he hasn't gotten a good role in right. like 20 years, but. I mean, I think he should have won like all the awards for this movie. Okay. The Princess Bride, starring Carol, Carrie Elwes, <laughs> <laughs> Robin Wright, Mandy Patinkin. Christopher Guest, Peter Falk, Fred Savage, Billy Crystal, Andre the Giant, and oh a my slew gosh. of others. Wow. Yeah, amazing cast, yeah. right? The Princess Bride is a fairy tale about true love. A young girl, Buttercup, and a farm boy fall in love and then are separated. Several years later, the farm boy named Wesley is believed to have been killed at the hand of the dread pirate Roberts, and Buttercup has been chosen as soon-to-be princess of the ruling Prince Humperdinck, who she does not love. When Buttercup is kidnapped by a trio of hapless criminals, both the prince and the pirate rush 
rushed to save her. All of this is told through a modern-day grandfather reading this fairy tale book to his homesick-from-school grandson. Which, by the way, I think that's the really brilliant part mm-hmm. of this sto- of this screenplay, yeah. is that it gave boys a window into this mostly point. feminine yeah. story. Totally yeah. agree. Because you could relate where he's like, oh, do we have to listen to the kissing? And then by the end of it, he wants to hear that. I mean, it's really Is this a kissing book? Yeah. Peter Falk, as the grandfather, tells us in the beginning just how awesome this movie is going to be. Is any sports in it? Are you kidding? Fencing, fighting, torture, revenge, giants, monsters, chases, escapes, true love, miracles... Doesn't sound too bad. This movie completely captured my imagination as a kid. It is simultaneously hilarious and moving and adventurous and violent and scary and sweet and gentle and thrilling and entirely larger than life. I was just as happy watching it alone as I was watching it with my family. In third grade, we had some sort of character dress-up day, and I borrowed a pair of my mom's knee-high black boots. (laughs) Why my mom had (laughs) knee-high black boots is still a great mystery to me that I'm afraid to ask about. But anyway, I went to school as the man in black. Jordan, I picture your mom, like, you coming home from school, Jordan, have you seen my sex boots? (laughs) (laughs) That's weird. Just the other day, my mom was like, hey, you should send the podcast to your dad. I think, he, I think he'd enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. not, they, they, not happening. <laughs> Both the novel and the screenplay were written by William Goldman, which may not be a household name, but his work is known and loved and crosses so many genre boundaries, it's astounding. From The Princess Bride to Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Marathon Man to All the President's Men, Heat to Misery to the Stepford Wives. It's a phenomenal body of work, but this one might just be the prize jewel in the princess's crown. Yeah, he's crown. pretty widely known as one of our oh. best screenwriters. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, but, he, might but be, not, he might be the greatest screenwriter who's ever lived. Yeah. It's just such a unique film. Nothing I've ever seen is anything like yeah. it. I mean, I guess on paper, like, Never Ending Story kind of sounds like it. It's a book, and they kind of get lost in this book, but this movie is just... It's, it's perfect as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, it was made in the 80s, but I think it could just as easily be a childhood movie for today's children because yeah. it, it's there's, there's a timelessness to it that Absolutely. few movies ever are able to accomplish. All righty, my number one childhood film. Uh, this one came a little bit late in my childhood, but it's a very important film to me, and that is Batman, 1989. The film directed by Tim Burton, starring Michael Keaton as Batman, Jack Nicholson as the Joker, and a soundtrack by Prince. I feel like I don't need to go into the plot because like, you guys know Batman. It's that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is the second Tim Burton film on my list uh, today, and I feel like that says something about my childhood. It sounds weird on paper. So Michael Keaton, Jack Nicholson, Prince, Tim Burton. These were all pretty weird choices back in 1989, and they even sound weird today, mostly because Prince is dead, and that'd be difficult to It'd bring It'd be hard to pull off. Way to bring it down. <clears throat> the Prince element is so weird. I yeah, it's odd. I Man, I happened. listened to that soundtrack over oh, and yeah, over and over But it's essentially, I mean, it's a musical in a way because it's got these Prince songs all throughout. Gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. Lawrence. And there was apparently a big backlash against the casting of Michael Keaton at the yeah, time, but I was blissfully unaware of this. He still seems like a in. weird choice to me. I think it totally works. It totally but works, But it's a yeah. weird choice. It had to take some convincing. But the great thing about this, and this might be kind of the last movie where I was so unaware of the making of movies, and it was a pre-internet world, that I could go into this movie with no expectations. You know, I didn't grow up on the 60s Batman, so there was no, I had no thoughts of what Batman should be. Um, and so Michael Keaton was kind of it for me. And I believe I've seen this movie more than 
any other movie. I think there's something that appealed to me about Bruce Wayne's dual nature, the public face versus the real person, um, as well as the ultra stylized world, fantastic score, the unique tone. And I think people forget how funny the movie is. Michael Keaton playing Bruce Wayne so straight and dry. Robert Rule as Alexander Knox and, of course, Jack Nicholson. Uh, I remember being a kid and quoting the line. This town needs an enema. Out loud at dinner one night. <laughs> and then my mom quieted me down and then told me what an enema was. <laughs> it was my first midnight movie on a Thursday night back when midnight movies were actually at midnight. So being a fifth grader and getting to go to a midnight movie was a big deal for me. And I remember standing in line and being so excited. It was the first movie I remember getting into the hype of it, the toys and tie-ins and movie trailers and posters. And it might be why I'm still so into blockbuster style films today, that there's this kind of group think of people getting excited about a movie. I don't ever remember a movie taking over a culture. Maybe Star Wars, but with the exception of that, I don't ever remember a movie taking over a culture the way Batman did in 1989. Yeah. It was like society just stopped for this movie. It was all anybody was talking about. Everybody was wearing the t-shirts. Lines around the theaters. It was absolutely insane. And in a good way. It was so much fun that everybody loved this thing so much. And I was obsessed. Batman is generally known as the movie that changed the way movies are marketed, and I'm pretty sure I'm the reason why. I had multiple pairs of Joker Chucks, Batman t-shirts, toys, trinkets, and I ate it up. <laughs> What's a Joker Chuck? Chuck Taylor. Converse. Chuck Taylor's. Oh. I had yeah. I had multiple pairs of those as well. Yeah, yeah. We were cool. <laughs> <laughs> did you ever wear like Joker on one foot and Batman on the other? I'm sure I did. I also had Joker sweatpants. I <laughs> <laughs> went quite that, that far. can't be cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally wore these to school, guys. Oh That's my why gosh. middle school was rough. Joker MC Hammer pants. I was like, who's yeah. that guy? Joker sweatpants. <laughs> Is that a bat signal on his pants? Uh, were you like the butt of was. every Joker? <laughs> Joker? Uh, I even remember going to Macy's one day and looking through the women's section trying to find a purple hat so I could join. Just like the Joker. <laughs> I did not find one. Well, if you need no. his long black boots, we know where to find those. Yeah. <laughs> I have a terrible memory, but if I could ever go back and quote an entire movie, this might be it. Yeah. It was around this time that I got into comic books as well, which heavily influenced my middle school years and, well, let's be honest, still influences me now. And while it took a while for the comic book movie craze to catch on, this is the early seeds of that in popular culture, and those seeds were firmly planted inside of me. I had heard, and I had not seen this movie, I revisited it earlier this year, actually, when I was on a plane. I watched it. I had heard it didn't hold up well. What I had heard was that it felt like a small movie now. And that was true, but it wasn't a problem. Right. And, and, I, and I thought the movie was still fantastic. And I think the reason it wasn't a problem was because it's not meant to be this big action spectacle. It actually turns into kind of a more intense character study of Jack Napier and Bruce Wayne. And for that reason, the fact it is a smaller movie is okay. It works with what what Burton was trying to do. I think what yeah. doesn't maybe hold up is that I, I watched it a year or so ago and it just felt like all the action felt really slow and the yeah. dialogue felt like all that kind of stuff felt slow. I still loved it. I thought it was awesome. See, I would counter that by saying that I feel like the action now feels too fast. Right. Like I actually felt like Batman worked better action wise than the current movies do now because I, to me, the most boring scenes in movies today are the action scenes because they're so quick paced and it's because they get lazy. Instead of actually having well choreographed fights that look real, what they do is they just use the camera to do all the work and it cuts so quick and it becomes so like chaotic that it just doesn't work at all and I actually found the, the, the fight scenes in Batman to be refreshing because you're right they were slower and from a certain standpoint you could say they were less exciting but they felt more authentic to me I revisited this a couple years ago I didn't love it like I did as a kid this was probably the movie I saw most as a kid at a theater I mean at least six or seven times I'd seen it I didn't love it as an adult but I was still amazed that I watched it and I could remember about 90% of the dialogue just 
It's time for who do you trust? Hubba, hubba, hubba. Money, money, money. All right, guys, Wait, what are you excited about? Somebody else go first. I'm not ready. All right, I'm excited about River's Edge International Film Festival, which we'll have already attended by the time this episode comes out. But this will be our third time attending in one of our favorite film fests. It's in Paducah, Kentucky every fall. And highly recommend it for any filmmakers looking to screen their films. They are a cool little town. Quality films, uh, amazing people. We just uh, really enjoy it. Looking forward to it. Yeah, it's awesome. I'm excited about how the world kind of came together for me today on my drive up here to Lance's house. I was driving up the highway and there was a Lamborghini next to me which was a big part of my childhood huh. loving lamborghinis yeah. you know i don't see one very often it's been a couple years since i saw one on the road and i saw a beautiful one today so i raced it and i lost also if you had been on time you wouldn't have seen it so i'm glad you were late that's right thank you mm-hmm. gibby <laughs> um so we have an election next tuesday you guys may have heard of but when we're recording this election a week from now well, i'm excited because this will be released on that day yeah uh, i'm excited because i have scheduled a flight that night and i will be on a plane while the election is happening what that means is if i start to land and i look down on the ground and fire has broken out everywhere and people are shooting each other i'm going to the cockpit and i'm telling them we're going to another country and i'll be out of here <laughs> so i will be i i, uh, I think that's called feels hijacking like a bad idea. <laughs> no no particular no because there will be no time. law or order anymore there's no ffa or fbi uh, to come now obviously you don't mean if clinton's elected because trump is the law and order candidate. So. i think well, either one of them either way happen. yeah either way it could happen i could see the country tipping into anarchy which country are you going to go to i don't I haven't figured that out yet i got a lot of work to do on that you got a week i know make sure there's enough gas in the plane maybe Where's one your of plane going to dallas oh you can yeah. just go straight Mexico. on to Mexico. Gonna have to go to Mexico. Oh, no, because if Trump wins, we might go to war with Mexico. So I don't know if but I want to do that. But there'll be a wall in between. Be a wall and you won't be able to. Yeah, it's not, he's not going to be able to build it fast enough. Oh, I think it's going up day one. <laughs> Your plane's not going to be able to get over it. <laughs> Twenty th- forty thousand foot wall. <laughs> That's his plan. Uh, I am excited tonight. Speaking of Tim Burton, which we've mentioned multiple times in this, I'm going to see The Nightmare Before Christmas tonight at the film theater. The film <laughs> theater. <laughs> <laughs> the movie room. Yeah. <laughs> Let me go to the old movie the, house. The moving I'll picture house. Nightmare Before Christmas. I haven't seen it in about 15, 16 Silver years. Silver screen. Yep. What's this? What's this? Would There's you believe? in the air. What's this? What's, what's this? There's snowflakes everywhere. That's not the words. What is this? <laughs> Great movie. Yep. Would you believe that I've never seen it? Really? I believe that. It's only 72 minutes long. I think you can do it. I didn't see it till last year, and it's awesome. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a great movie. Wait, what? Yeah, it, it took me a long time to watch. Really? Wait, yeah, I'm sorry, Hudson. What do you want me to do? I, <laughs> I know, that's that blows what my happened. Mind. I could have sworn you had the soundtrack, and you would sing along with it all that, the time. I would, I would sing it. That was good. Wow. Thanks, guys. I'll be. Thanks for listening. Thank you. We love you. Wow, that was weird. Hey there, partners. This is the frog in Jordan's throat. Reminding you to join us next week when we talk about rotten movies we love, including the sequel to the movie version of a TV show, a movie whose director cast himself as the savior of the world, and a movie with a whopping 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. One last thing before we go, here's a message from the former governor of the great state of California. Hi, this is Arnold. Ice to see you. Let us know how your list differs at Fight About Film on Facebook and Twitter or email us at fightaboutfilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. Get to the chopper!
Science. Science.